you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. This story ended up being far larger and more well-documented than I had anticipated, and had I realized that beforehand, I would have given myself a little more time to pull everything together for this one. So, I apologize for this episode being a few days late as a result. On the afternoon of Monday, November 29, 1909, the telephone at the police station in East Orange, New Jersey rang. On the other end of the line was what sounded to be an elderly woman, who said that her name was Virginia Wardlaw, and she asked for a coroner to be sent to her home, as her niece had just committed suicide. They dispatched the Essex County Deputy County Physician, Dr. H.M. Simmons, to 89 North 14th Street. A far cry from the upper-class residences of Burnett Street, where Clara Coffin lived, for that story, see Episode 8, The Strange Case of Clara Coffin. But a far cry from those posh addresses, 14th Street was a working-class neighborhood, home to single-family homes and cheap boarding houses. The house to which Dr. Simmons had been dispatched was vacant to all appearances. The windows were all closed, and he couldn't see any light from inside. When he knocked at the door, it was answered after a moment by a woman dressed all in black, a woman who introduced herself as Virginia Wardlaw, the woman who had called the police. Miss Wardlaw led him through a house nearly devoid of furniture, save for a few cots, to a bathroom. In the bathtub, along with about a foot of water, lay the body of a severely emaciated woman, only about 80 pounds. Virginia Wardlaw said that her niece, for the body in the bathtub was her niece, 24-year-old O.C. Sneed, had taken a bath that afternoon and died. She showed the doctor a heap of clothing outside the bathroom door. On the top of the little pile was a suicide note. Last year, my little daughter died. Other near and dear ones have gone before. I want to join them in heaven. I have been prostrated with illness for a long time. When you read this, I will have committed suicide. Do not grieve for me. Rejoice with me that death brings a blessed relief from pain and suffering greater than I can bear. The note was signed OCWM Sneed. Miss Wardlaw informed the doctor that her niece had been in rather poor health ever since the death of her first child two years before, and that she recently had given birth to a second child, after which her health had declined even further. She said that they had moved to East Orange from Flatlands in Brooklyn only a week before. 
Dr. Simmons was puzzled by the fact that Virginia Wardlaw was telling him that the woman in the bathtub had died only a few hours before, when even his cursory examination of the body where it lay showed him that she had been dead for at least a day. Unsatisfied with Miss Wardlaw's answers, he contacted the police and had her picked up for questioning. With Virginia Wardlaw in custody, police went to her former homes in Flatlands, Brooklyn, where they found some bones in a stove and blood on the floor, or at least what they thought were bones and blood. They reached the somewhat illogical conclusion that they had come upon a baby farm. Reports indicate that police didn't place too much weight on this, and they eventually vanished from the record altogether, so I'm assuming they were found to be completely irrelevant. Over the next few days, police gradually put the pieces together. Oceana Wardlaw Martin Sneed, O.C. as she was usually called, had been born at 37 East 39th Street in New York City in September of 1885 to Colonel Robert Maxwell Martin, a former Confederate officer, and his wife Caroline. When O.C. was about five, the family moved to Colonel Martin's house near Louisville, Kentucky. Sometime after 1900, most likely after the death of Colonel Martin, Caroline and O.C. took up residence with Caroline's sisters, Virginia Wardlaw, the woman now in police custody, Mary Sneed, who was married to another former Confederate officer, Colonel Fletcher Tillman Sneed, and Bessie Spindle. Caroline and Virginia were teachers at the Montgomery Female Academy in Christiansburg, Virginia, and Bessie the principal. Sometime around 1906, O.C. secretly married Fletcher Sneed, Mary's son and her cousin. Thus, Mary Sneed was simultaneously O.C.'s aunt and mother-in-law. The school's fortunes declined, and by 1904, the Montgomery Male Academy had closed, leading to male students attending the school as well. It soon closed, and Caroline, Virginia, and Mary, as well as Fletcher and O.C., left for New York. Fletcher and O.C. held a second wedding ceremony, and in 1908 they had their first child, a daughter named Mary Alberta. She unfortunately lived only two days. Shortly afterward, O.C. became pregnant again. Around this time, Fletcher Sneed disappeared. The sisters apparently told O.C. that he had gotten ill, went south for his health, and had there died. This, however, was to eventually prove not the case, and in fact it eventually came out that O.C. knew Fletcher was not dead. Once Fletcher was out of the picture, the treatment of O.C. began to take a turn for the worse. They spoke to a doctor named W.R. Pettit, who said that he had been to the house rented by the sisters on 48th Street near Mill Basin in Brooklyn on several occasions, brought in to attend O.C. during her pregnancy. He said that when he first arrived there, a heavily pregnant O.C. was very weak owing to a state of near starvation. She seemed depressed and indeed afraid of those about her, he said. He noted that the sisters were always present in the room whenever he saw the pregnant woman, however, and he felt that his ability to effectively treat her was compromised. Dr. Pettit stated, however, that despite O.C.'s malnourished condition, he thought the sisters sought to make her believe she was worse off than she actually was, and that he told the sisters as much, and that she was not actually dangerously ill. Eventually, as his advice was not being followed, nor was he being paid for that matter, he stopped going to the house. Another doctor was summoned, but this doctor was dismissed after he smuggled food to O.C. on one occasion, 
and surreptitiously entered the house through a window to see his patient after being denied entry to the home on another occasion. After this, the doctor was dismissed and Dr. Pettit once more summoned. He next returned to the home in August, at which time he found that O.C. was no longer pregnant. The baby, a son named David, was quite ill and was sent to a hospital and then to an orphanage. He would eventually die in July of 1910. Virginia Wardlaw told Dr. Pettit that he should inform O.C. that she was dying, and that he should advise her to make out her will. The doctor declined to do this, however, and instead brought a nurse in to care for O.C. on a more permanent basis. The nurse, Elizabeth Mogg, attended the home only one time, unable, she said, to ever really hold a conversation with her patient. Whenever she asked O.C. a question, inevitably it was one of the sisters who would answer. When she left on the night of August 18th, she said that O.C. didn't seem to want her to leave, but that the sisters insisted she do so. Like before, however, rather than pay Dr. Pettit, they offered to give him $1,000 from O.C.'s will. He felt that this was highly inappropriate and notified the police, though it appears not much was done about the concerns. On September 8th, a will was drawn up by lawyer William H. Fee and signed by O.C. Sneed. The will left $500 to her newborn son and the remainder of her estate to her grandmother and the mother of the three sisters, Martha Eliza Wardlaw. Only two days later, on September 10th, another lawyer named Julius V. Caraba was asked to draw up another will, which was to be pretty much identical to the one Fee produced. The sisters seemed to have gotten it into their heads that the first will was somehow invalid. Whatever the case, after Caraba spoke with Osi and the sisters, Something made him look askance at the deal, and he declined to make out the will. Not much was evident about the next month or so. In early November, the sisters and O.C. moved out of the Flatlands house and moved to 466 West 22nd Street in Chelsea. At this address, O.C. was visited by Dr. H.W. Richards on November 4th. Like Pettit before him, he found the young woman in an extremely dire condition, very weak, ill, and malnourished and also, like Pettit, found none of his advice was being followed. On November 14th, Mary Sneed rented the home in East Orange, where the dead body of her niece would be found about two weeks later, although Mary Sneed herself remained living at the 22nd Street address in Manhattan with O.C.'s grandmother. It appeared that only Virginia Wardlaw was resident at, at the East Orange address, however. The suspicions initially raised by Dr. Simmons, which caused the arrest of Miss Wardlaw, were only deepened when the police investigated and spoke with the accused woman. By her own admission, O.C. was so weak on November 28th that she had to be aided in walking, and she also told him that she needed to run and heat the bathwater for her. Why, then, did it take her nearly 24 hours to check on her niece? Though Miss Wardlaw adamantly insisted O.C. had committed suicide, it was beginning to look like that wasn't necessarily the case. This feeling was only heightened when it was found that she carried nearly $30,000 in life insurance, or almost $855,000 in today's money. As said in one of the many New York Times articles chronicling the case, The theory has been advanced that by agreement, Miss Wardlaw left the house after fixing the water for the bath, so she could prove an alibi, and another person committed the crime. They also had received a statement from a woman named Kathleen Bond. Bond was resident at the 22nd Street Boarding House in New York, where Mary Sneed lived with her mother. 
She seemed under the impression that Caroline Martin was adopted rather than a biological sister, and also that O.C. was the daughter of Mary Sneed. Speaking of Virginia Wardlaw, she said, We in the boarding house have always known the accused woman as the tramp. She was always coming in and out of the house and holding consultations behind closed doors with old Mrs. Sneed and the latter's daughter and adopted daughter. But she only spent three nights in the house. Mrs. Martin, Mrs. Sneed's adopted daughter, was the master. She seemed to dictate everything, received most of the mail, and kept Mrs. Sneed's daughter, the girl now dead, in her room. Mrs. Martin came to the house first. She gave the proprietress, Mrs. Anderson, 50 cents to allow mail to be delivered to her there, under various names. Then she engaged the ground floor parlor. This was the first week in November. Later, she engaged the third floor sitting room, bedroom, and bathroom for old Mrs. Sneed and the latter's daughter and granddaughter. There seemed nothing the matter with the latter. She seemed bright and gay and flitted between her relative's third floor and first floor apartments. She ate next to nothing. They got their own mails and had nothing to do with any of us. They said they were in our real estate business and that they wanted to move to the country for the old lady's health. Mrs. Sneed, the dead girl's mother, left three weeks ago, saying she was going to get a cottage for the old lady in the country. Mrs. Martin took the old lady and the daughter away about two weeks ago. Mrs. Martin returned, but went away again last Wednesday. Mrs. Sneed brought the old lady back on Thursday. On Monday a week ago, Miss Wardlaw, who was now held by the police, came in to see Mrs. Martin. On last Monday, the day on which the girl proved to have been lying dead in East Orange, old Mrs. Sneed and her daughter, for some unknown reason, suddenly pulled down the blinds, locked the doors, and kept the gas burning all day in the West 22nd Street rooms until we went in and made them put it out. The statements of Kathleen Bond seem to suggest that the entire family was unusual in habits. Another woman spoken with, a Mrs. Wickland, who said that she knew the Wardlaws while they lived in Flatlands, said that shortly after the will was signed on September 8th, Martha Wardlaw, the three sisters' mother, said that she didn't want any money acquired in such an underhanded way, implying she realized that O.C. Sneed was being hastened toward death. She also said that her daughters had taken all of her money and that she was afraid of them at times. Virginia Wardlaw was remanded to Essex County Jail under suspicion of having murdered O.C. Sneed. She took as counsel Franklin W. Fort, later state representative for New Jersey. They were also seeking the other two sisters. While they knew where Mary Sneed was, she was of little help to the investigation and only stated that she believed O.C. had committed suicide. Caroline Martin, however, had vanished completely. O.C. Sneed was finally buried on December 7th at Mount Hope Cemetery in Hastings on Hudson. She was buried next to her father, a deceased brother, her daughter Mary Alberta, and eventually her son David. Her Aunt Mary Sneed was the only attendee at the funeral. Two days later, on December 9th, one of the people saw it, Fletcher Sneed's brother Albert, was located in Palisade, Colorado. He offered little, not having really associated with the family for years. He did say, however, that he felt Virginia Wardlaw should be released. She is one of the most loving and self-sacrificing women that ever lived. She never had any connection with O.C.'s death. On December 14th, a grand jury was convened in Newark, with Chief Justice William Gamere presiding, 
to begin the prosecution of Virginia Wardlaw. The next day, authorities finally located Fletcher Sneed, who, as I said, was not dead despite the sisters' insistence as to this. He was found in Canada, in St. Catharines, Ontario. He had been working since spring at the New Murray Hotel as a dishwasher under the assumed name of John Lucas. At first he was reticent to talk, or even to acknowledge who he actually was, but eventually he relented and gave a statement. I left New York on April 20th last. I think that is the exact date. On that day, I resigned the name of Fletcher Sneed and took the one I bear now. I had no money, and to secure enough to get away, I worked in a cheap New York restaurant. After that, I came direct to St. Catharines, Ontario. It was not my purpose to desert my wife and family. I loved them. It was simply to avoid testifying in the federal case against William Earthman of Nashville, Tennessee. It may seem ridiculous that I would go to such lengths, but people of the North cannot understand. William Earthman was the best friend I had on Earth. I loved him like a father. Through him I made what they considered a fortune. Then they subpoenaed me to testify against him for breaking the United States banking laws. I told my wife, my mother, and my aunts that I would die before I would do it. Then I decided that the whole United States could not make me do it, and so I got out of the country. Then, even to my wife, I became no longer Fletcher Sneed. To all of them, I was dead. They have not lied in saying that I was dead, even though it has been shown that my aunt visited me here in June. It was only Fletcher Sneed who was dead, and for them also to never admit otherwise was their idea of honor. Hi there, I'm Oz from the Oddball Aussie Podcast. Do you enjoy hearing about ufology, the paranormal, cryptids, and anything else that's strange or unknown? If so, then my show might just be for you. Join me for a different topic once a week and a midweek show that's all about listeners' true stories. Follow me on Twitter at AussieOddball or email me at theoddballaussie at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show and stay safe out there in the weird. At the same time, back in New York, Caroline Martin was discovered staying under an assumed name at the Hotel Bayard in Manhattan. Based on the collected statements, the police felt they had enough reason to arrest Mrs. Martin. While being taken to the police station, Mrs. Martin spoke of suicide several times, telling the officers, I am old and can't help anyone, and I am of no use, and saying she would welcome death. She also said that, there are hundreds of suicides every day. No attention would have been paid to this one, except that the party had money. When arriving at the station, she fainted numerous times. She was arraigned and held in the tomb's prison in the city. She later gave a statement to the police attempting to explain why she had vanished and why she had neglected to even attend her own daughter's funeral. I was ill in bed two weeks. I saw in the paper also that I would be arrested and I knew that we would need money, and that I had to arrange for it. If I were held even as a witness, I would have little opportunity to do the writing necessary to dispose of my property or obtain a lien on it. The next day after Martin's arrest, on December 16th, the third sister, Mary Sneed, was also arrested. 
All three of the Wardlaw sisters were now in custody, though issues presented themselves as to the indictments of the latter two. They were held in New York, rather than New Jersey, after all. To be tried for the murder, they would need to be extradited to New Jersey first. The district attorney for Kings County said that the Brooklyn authorities were going to attempt to determine whether the women relatives of Mrs. Sneed conspired in Brooklyn to shorten her life by depriving the dead woman of food and proper medical attention. First, when questioned about the starvation of her daughter, Mrs. Martin said, That was one of the ways in which she attended to do away with herself, if no other fashion offered. Franklin W. Fort, Virginia Wardlaw's lawyer, provided counsel for Caroline Martin and Mary Sneed as well. At least in the case of Mrs. Sneed, her complicity seemed to have mainly been in actually renting the East Orange House. Any role she may have had in the events that actually took place there was unclear. But back to the case against Mrs. Martin, some rather damning evidence was found in her hotel room. Three notes, practically identical to the O.C. Sneed suicide note, were found. The paper was the same, the writing was similar, and the text itself was practically identical, except for slight variations in phrasing. These were thought to represent attempts to forge O.C.'s handwriting. As a result, handwriting analyst William Kinsley began examination of the note in an attempt to determine if it was actually O.C.'s handwriting, of which they now had several genuine examples. Handwriting analysis is of course generally discredited nowadays. Having seen a picture of O.C.'s genuine handwriting in the supposed suicide note in one of the news articles I looked at, there's really only a slight difference, with some anomalies that could very well have resulted from extreme weakness. In the end, Kinsley couldn't reach any definitive conclusion either about whether the note had or had not been written by the dead woman. Also found in the room was a box containing over a hundred letters. Some of these were also suicide notes, many addressed to various prominent New Yorkers, though never mailed. Some of these seemed suspiciously adamant about distancing all others from O.C. Sneed's death. Because I feel my life ebbing away from sickness and suffering and losses, I feel the urgent necessity of hastening my own death by my own hand, by a means I have hidden from everyone. I would die away from the natural cause of sickness, but I cannot endure longer the suffering of this lingering death, and so I will myself end my own life at the very earliest opportunity that I can find. I alone am responsible for this, because my physical sufferings and losses and bereavement are so great. No living person is to blame for my death or has had anything to do with causing my death, which is due to my being unable to endure the suffering and losses and bereavement. Caroline Martin maintained that all the letters found in her hotel room had been written by her daughter and were not forgeries. Other letters were, from, were found that were from Fletcher Sneed, addressed to his wife, and there were also others from O.C. addressed to Fletcher. The letters from Fletcher had been kept from her, and the letters from O.C. had never been mailed. Presumably, this was done either to convince her that Fletcher had moved on, or that he had, in fact, died. It was generally felt that this was done in order to heighten her depression in attempts to hasten her death or suicide. Yet another that at least purported to be from O.C. was addressed to her lawyer. In it, she expressed concern that her life insurance policies would lapse if she lived too much longer, and urged him promptly to collect my insurance in cash and pay it over to my grandmother without requiring any bind or security from her. 
When Caroline learned that Franklin W. Fort intended to mount an insanity defense, she dismissed him as her lawyer and contracted Colonel Robert J. Hare, a well-known lawyer who had once represented Jesse James and had succeeded in getting his brother Frank released from prison. Hare was also acquitted on charges of suborning perjury and witness bribing years later. Fort also thought that it was inadvisable for her to fight extradition to New Jersey. With the acquisition of Colonel Hare as her lawyer, however, she did, in fact, begin to fight the extradition. In one of the extradition hearings, she told the court, I am here as the result of a conspiracy on the part of millionaires who want what little property I have left. Every newspaper in New York is subsidized by these millionaires who are persecuting me. I and my sisters have lived out of the way of the world, and things we say are easily twisted. The shock and injustice of my arrest have enfeebled a very old woman. If that is what my enemies want, they need go no further. My daughter Osi came to her death by her own hand. I did not see her do it. I did not know that it was done until Virginia was arrested, but I was not surprised. Months went by, and finally all three sisters were held in New Jersey and a trial date set. Dr. William Hicks had revealed that a lethal dose of morphine had been administered to O.C. Sneed before her death. He was also able to determine that she was drugged, whether willingly or unwillingly, on several occasions. Colonel Hare made out that O.C. had been a morphine addict for years. The trial was initially set for April 11, 1910, with Judge J. Ten Ake presiding. The trial was delayed a number of times, with Virginia Wardlaw dying in prison in August of that year. She had committed suicide by starving herself to death, an eerie echo of the treatment her niece had received. The trial was delayed again due to the death and the illness of Chief Prosecutor Wilbur Mott, who would go on to carry out the trial in the Hall Mills murder case. The sisters were now being represented by Chandler W. Riker and Chauncey Beasley. They soon attempted a similar tactic to that which Franklin W. Fort had attempted months before, and later in August, an insanity commission was convened to examine Caroline Martin. On September 20, 1910, she was declared insane by her brother, sister, and two doctors. Both lawyers concurred. Mrs. Martin was sent to the Essex County Hospital for the insane. Another physician felt she was not truly insane, and testified in court to that effect. When the witness was on the stand, she began an argument with him. Arguing with a person wanting to declare you sane, that's a good tactic. At any rate, it backfired, because on November 19th, her insanity was upheld. Finally, in January of 1911, Caroline Martin relented. As part of a plea deal, she pled no contest to manslaughter. It had been decided that though it was strongly suspected O.C. Sneed had been murdered, it couldn't really be proven in any way. So the prosecution eventually settled on a charge of manslaughter, saying that Mrs. Martin recklessly allowed morphine to be given to her daughter, and that the dosage was too strong for her severely weakened system, and that her death resulted in this way. But while Judge Tenake was, was delivering the sentence, she flew into a rage. I am innocent in the sight of God, she swore. I am as innocent as Judge Tenacre, Mr. Mott. I have done nothing to injure my daughter, absolutely nothing. She was eventually quieted, and the judge read on. After she was sentenced to the asylum, as her madness had been upheld, she again began screaming and ranting at the court. I never denied being in East Orange in my life, never. This is a series of lies against a mother 
an innocent mother who had done nothing to her child but love her and care for her. Men that wouldn't keep her from starving, but who take their taxpayers' money for blackening her name, my mother's name. I have done nothing to anybody, living or dead, except love them and strive to help them. What the judge is saying is based upon the lies of men who do not know of a mother's... And here she was dragged from the courtroom. Caroline Martin was sent to the New Jersey State Hospital in Trenton, where she eventually died of a heart attack on June 10, 1913. On February 7, 1911, charges were formally dropped against Mary Sneed, who seemed to have not had too much involvement in the plot anyway. She later moved to Colorado, where she died in 1937. The charges that had been pending against Virginia Wardlaw were posthumously withdrawn. In 1930, interest in the 20-year-old case was revived when a number of diamond rings that had formerly belonged to Virginia Wardlaw and been stolen were discovered in a safety deposit box at a bank in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Authorities were once more seeking Fletcher or Albert Sneed, both of whom had disappeared again. There was a rumor that Fletcher Sneed was at that time in Vancouver, British Columbia. Fletcher's son, Robert Sneed, made a move to lay claim to the jewelry, though in the end, Mary Sneed claimed them, and as it was felt she had a stronger claim, they were given to her. In the ensuing renewal of interest in the murder case which, in which she had been embroiled 20 years before, she made a few statements about her niece's death. Time, and the fact that both other parties were now dead, allowed her to speak more honestly about what had gone on. The bare truth is that Mrs. Martin had been insane for years. She should have been put away years before. But Virginia thought she could care for her. We were a proud and distinguished family, and you know how one does try to keep such family misfortunes quiet. Mrs. Martin became steadily worse. She caused so much trouble that Miss Wardlaw had to leave her position with Soul College. Mary Sneed's statement seemed to confirm what had been many people's suspicions about the case, that Caroline Martin was the ringleader and probably far more responsible than anyone else. The general feeling during the time the murder of O.C. Sneed was making its rounds on the newspapers back in 1909 had been that, as one New York Times article said, many of the sisters' strange actions were to cover up the insanity of one of them. A statement had also been made upon the death of Virginia Wardlaw that Miss Wardlaw had staunch supporters who say that she has for years been a shield for Mrs. Martin and that she owes all the trouble which came upon her in late years to her strong-minded sister. This seems to be exactly what Mary Sneed said was the case. Evidence of how possibly insane she may have been had been discovered during the investigation into O.C.'s death. As mentioned during her burial, O.C. had an older brother named Yu. He died in 1888 after falling down the stairs at home. It was said that $30,000, the same amount that O.C.'s death produced years later, in insurance money, was received upon his death. Around 1900, Colonel Martin's Kentucky home mysteriously burned. And in 1901, Colonel Martin died at his home in New York, apparently of a stroke though Caroline stood above his body and was scolding a young Osi. And after, and after Caroline Martin and her daughter moved to the college in Christiansburg with her sisters, there was another death. She had traveled to Linville, Tennessee one day, where Fletcher Sneed and his brother John were then living. She implored John to come back to Christiansburg and become a teacher at the school. He refused. She asked him several more times, and he called the police on her.
This set up a confrontation which Caroline was to describe later. According to her, the sisters had paid for John to go to school, and he refused to pay them back. When she threatened to sue, he threatened to get her carted off to an asylum. But he eventually relented and went with her. It was said that the sisters had likewise taken out an insurance policy on John, with Virginia Wardlaw as beneficiary. John seems to have first been pushed, though of course it was claimed that he jumped, from the train near Roanoke, Virginia. Later, once they had arrived at the college, he fell into a cistern on the property. The school's caretaker found him and pulled him from the water before he died, however. Finally, one night John was found with his nightclothes on fire. The bed was soaked with kerosene. The sisters claimed it was accidental, but how kerosene accidentally ends up on your bed, I don't know. So with a number of arsons and murders quite possibly under her belt, I don't really question the conclusions that Caroline was insane and her sisters merely got embroiled in her madness. Another interesting matter I didn't bring up before because, well, frankly I couldn't find a convenient place to bring it up, but I did find this very interesting when I found it, is that Colonel Robert Maxwell Martin, O.C.'s father, had been appointed by Jefferson Davis to the Confederate Secret Service, led by a politician named Jacob Thompson, who at that time was a resident in Toronto, Ontario. This was due to the fact that, during the Civil War, the Canadian government pretty much turned a blind eye to such activities, so long as the laws of Canada weren't violated. In 1864, Thompson had detailed Colonel Martin and several other Confederate operatives, most of whom had served in the 10th Kentucky Cavalry, to carry out a plan to burn New York to the ground. The plot, which fizzled out because most of the fire starters were generally pretty incompetent, still resulted in several fires set in New York hotels on the evening of November 25th, as well as P.T. Barnum's museum. Colonel Martin hadn't been one of those actually carrying out the attacks, however. But he also later attempted to abduct the vice president, Andrew Johnson. One last thing I feel I need to address so that no one falls for it. One of the websites I used as a reference, the Malefactors Register site, reproduces a picture of O.C. lying in bed at the top of the page. It's described as one of the sort of post-mortem photography so common to the Victorian and Edwardian eras when they, you know, took pictures of dead people. This is incorrect, however. There's two pictures in this series set, whatever you want to call them, and the second makes it clear that it was taken around the time of the birth of one of her children. I'm not sure which one. I've seen conflicting reports on various pages about that. In any case, she had either about a year and a half of life left if it's the first child, or several months if it's the second. Whatever the case might be, she was very much alive at the time this picture was taken. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, 
Till next time, this is Andrew, signing off. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.